If you have your Bibles, turn with me. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 1 and verse 1. And we embark on a new journey today. And our verse by verse, as always, exposition of the Apostle Paul. This is a book of colossal importance and gravitas, weightiness. So get comfortable. We're going to be here for a while. Today I'm just going to lay some groundwork with some introductory thoughts based around verses 1 and 2. And as always, when I start a new book, I give my disclaimer. I am a very undereducated preacher, having never been to seminary. So as you know, the bulk of my material I pull from probably the greatest expositor in the modern day, John MacArthur. I look at other commentaries and different things, but the bulk of what material I pull from to condense and repackage for you and for my learning. Literally what I'm doing every single week is I'm learning and then I'm giving to you what I learn. That's what I'm doing. So let's begin by just reading verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur tells the story of a lady named Hetty Green. She was called America's greatest miser. When she died, she left an estate at $100 million. Now, that's a lot of money. But you have to understand that when Hetty Green died with an estate of $100 million, it was 1916. So that was a lot more money than it is now. Hetty was so miserly She said she ate cold oatmeal because it was too expensive to heat the water to warm it. Christy and I knew someone like that (laughs) who will remain nameless. Her son once had a leg injury so severe that she was delaying getting him treatment because she was trying to find a free clinic to take him to. And she delayed so long, her son's leg had to be amputated. And she was worth $100 million in 1916, which is really a bizarre way of how to use your resources, to say the least, right? And this book 
of Ephesians is written and geared toward Christians who are like Hetty. What I mean by that? What I mean is the kind of a Christian who does not understand the riches that they have in Christ. The Christian who wanders through life with a case of spiritual malnutrition because they don't know where the feast is and they don't know how truly rich they are. Some commentators have called the book of Ephesians the bank of the believer. Consider this epistle your spiritual checkbook starting today. And every time you write a check out of this bank, your funds will never get lower. You will never bounce a check out of this checkbook. Ephesians. Not for the rest of your life. No matter how many times you withdraw. But you don't know that unless you really understand the principles that are given to us in the book of Ephesians. It's a book about riches. It's a book about fullness, inheritance, what we own in Christ. Some call it the treasure house of the Bible. And let me just give you a couple of quick snapshot examples to show you what I mean. In chapter 1, verse 7, notice there at the end, it talks about the riches of his grace. In chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ. In chapter 3, verse 16, within that verse, it talks about the riches of his glory as you see it there. So just three verses, the riches of his grace, the riches of his son, the riches of his glory. So God is just unloading his riches here in the book of Ephesians. The word grace is used 12 times, which as you know, the word grace means unmerited favor. Grace, of course, is the primary driver behind all of these riches that we're going to see God pour out in this study of Ephesians. The word glory is used eight times. The word inheritance is used four times. The word riches is used five times. The word fullness and filled are used seven times. And the key to getting all this is understanding that because as believers we are in Christ, all the fullness of the riches of the inheritance of the glory of God's grace is ours now. Right now. We're not waiting on it. 
It's really a mind-blowing thought. MacArthur says there are enough resources in heavens to cover all past debts, present liabilities, and future needs, and still not diminish your account. That is God's plan for you, Christian. At the end of chapter 3 in verse 19, it says, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. It just keeps being repeated in chapter 4, verse 13. It says, until we attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to what? The fullness of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 18, as you know, it says what? Be filled with the Spirit. So this is a book about fullness. Just in those three verses, fullness of God, fullness of Christ, fullness of the Spirit. All of that is ours now. If we are indeed in Christ through saving faith. And this is guaranteed. And being in Christ is the key. This is synonymous with our union with Christ that we've spoke about in the past. And it's truly beyond our comprehension. When we consider some of the the outworking of this reality in Scripture, for example... In Romans 8, in verse 17, that verse is describing all believers. Look what it says. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. That, folks, is staggering. Heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. Consider what all belongs to Christ. Everything. Everything. Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us brother. How about that? He's not ashamed to call us brother and yet you're a fellow heir with him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. All I can do is, 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 is grasp the concept out of those verses that we have what he has. That we possess what he possesses. All of his riches are at our disposal. When I put all this together, I, I, I just really cannot even begin to conceive in my mind what heaven is really going to be like. I can't even begin. I don't even try. All that I can conceive is that it's going to be infinitely better and more amazing than anything that my brain can imagine. I can get that. Peter calls it an inheritance that is laid away incorruptible and 
defiled. And I love this phrase. Guess what? He says next, reserved in heaven for you. You got a reservation there. Ephesians is going to work at trying hard to get us to get all this because it's so mind-blowing. It's so staggering. And what's even more incredible is that not one iota of it, any of it, is based upon anything that we have ever done. Not one bit of it, anything we have ever earned or could possibly earn is all Christ. For example, all of our riches in Christ are based upon quite a list here. I'm just going to hit you now with my my Tommy gun, rapid fire, his will, one, five, his grace, one, six, and seven, his glory, one, 12, and 14, his power, one, 19, his love, two, four, his good pleasure, one, nine, his purpose, one, 11, his calling, one, 18, his inheritance, one, 18, and his workmanship, two, 10. That's where we're heading. And it's all because of Christ. And as usual, Apostle Paul takes the first three chapters to tell us what our resources are, and the first three chapters are going to be that thick theological section, and we will all have to put on our big boy and big girl britches as we go through the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then the last three chapters tell us how to use them. That's going to be the practical section, okay? Six chapters, that's what we're dealing with here. And then he also takes all of this at the same time to another level as well. He not only talks about our riches individually, but he also talks about the whole idea that all of this, all of these riches, all of these resources are ours because we are in His church. And I'm not talking about Baptist or Presbyterian or any kind of denomination. I'm talking about the body of Christ. Who is that? All of the regenerate, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, believers. That's who make up the church of Jesus Christ in the world at any given moment in time. And this epistle discusses the church, what it is, how it functions, and what the riches of the church are. Now, I want to give you another introductory thought here. Remember, this is an introductory message. What we're doing here is we're just laying a foundation that we're going to build upon as we go into these verses. If you go over chapter 3 and verse number 3, you see Paul say that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. Now stop right there. What is the mystery? Well, that's a huge topic here in Ephesians. You're going to see 
Go to verse 5 and you start learning about the mystery, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy spirit, holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So it's a mystery that has been hidden. It's been a mystery up until this point for a long time. But it's not a mystery anymore. Is what Paul is saying. Because this mystery has been revealed. Look next at verse 6. To be specific. You ready for it? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There it is. He's explaining it to you. We're all Gentiles, right? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Take note of that phrase, the body. That's the key to understanding Paul's definition of the church. And he says, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the book of Ephesians presents the mystery of the church through the revelation made known to Paul, verse 3 says. And, and that which was not made known in prior generations is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, it's very hard for us today, especially today, to grasp how that right there, that reality hit the mind of a first century Jew. Very, very hard for us to grasp that, that Jews and Gentiles would be one body in the church. Now let's take a sidebar for just a minute, if you don't mind. Doesn't matter if you mind or not, we're going to take it. And let's talk about how God reveals things. And just stick with me here, okay? Because we have a point. There are three basic ways that God reveals things. Number one, there are some God, some things that God never tells anybody ever. They are known only to God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Is, is the verse that makes this so clear. Look at it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. How many of you know God's not ever obligated to tell us anything? He's not obligated to do anything for us. And the things that he holds back from revealing to us, guess what? Are for our good and are a part of his infinitely wise purposes. In fact, our craniums would probably literally explode if he were revealed just a tiny portion more of what we don't know from him now, which is an infinitude of glorious truths that we can't even imagine. So in his kindness to us, 
to keep our little tiny brains from exploding. He has a whole secret side of his glory and the realities about him that he has not revealed to man. He gives you some picture of the magnitude of God. Now, number two, God has some secrets that he reveals to special people all throughout history. And the special people are believers. Now, not, not special in the sense of better than, of course not, but rather in the sense of special being distinct from others. You understand? All believers are in this group. Anything that God ever revealed for his people is for all his people to know. There is no secret, special knowledge for some higher class of believers. That's Gnosticism is what that is. But this is why God's revealed truth is recorded in Scripture. Look, for example, at Psalm 25 and verse 14. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. That's believers. So there are some things that nobody knows and there are some things only believers know. Do you realize how much we know and understand that unbelievers don't know and understand? And again, that's that's not a prideful statement at all. Not, not, not at all. If you take that as a prideful statement, you're not taking it right. That's a statement of fact. Think about the things you know now that you didn't know before you were a believer. Hmm? About God, about you, about the way things work. Now, they know some things about God. Read Romans 1, natural revelation, observed in creation, and so on. We've been, you know, that whole list. But for believers, it's very different. In fact, Matthew 11, verse 25 says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Infants referring to believers right there in that verse. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 11, it says, And the disciples came to him, came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know, there's that word, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. That's flyover country for the Arminian, by the way. We're going to skip right past that. Now, there's one more category. There are some things that God keeps secret from everybody for a period of time, and then he finally reveals them to his special people in the New Testament. As you know, there are things that we know that the Old Testament saints did not know. You want to take a look? Just go read 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. 
for that, I'm just going to summarize those verses real quick. He says the Old Testament prophets were, were searching for what this thing was that they were writing down. What is this all about? And it even goes so far as to say even the angels were longing to understand it in that passage. Man, think about that for a minute. Now, there were plenty of hints, types, shadows. We talk about that all the time. But overall, there were some things that God kept secret during the Old Testament time period from his special people, believers that were finally completely and fully revealed in the New Testament. The word for mystery in the Greek is mysterion. And it's not like mystery in the sense that you have to sneak around to try to find the answer to it. This means something that was hidden and is now revealed specifically here hidden previously and now revealed in the New Testament. That's what we're talking about. And that the church would be coming together into one body, incorporating Jew and Gentile in one living organism. As you know, I mean, there were some small hints of this, but the Jews never saw this. And Paul, the Hebrew of all Hebrews Pharisee, knocked off his horse and born again, is the one who God used to reveal this mystery, which is incredible to sit here and think about. And I could just go on well after lunch just with that point right there. But I want to bring you back around to the point of our riches. We know things today, so much more things, that none of the Old Testament saints knew about God and how he is operating in his redemptive plan for mankind. We have truth and resources that they never had. We are so spiritually rich living in this New Testament age. And let me tell you, specifically in this modern age, I was listening to James White. He was talking about, even when they put together the the King James Bible, how few manuscripts they had to deal with. And the common folk didn't even have until well after the Reformation began, the Bible as a whole in their hands that they could read. Now you can go logo software. You can just go to town. on. We just got floods of information that, that no other generation has had boop, at our fingertip on your phone, in your hand, in your pocket. And that's the basis on which the riches are, of Ephesians are, are made available, that we have this so much. Living now with fully realized truth that these Old Testament saints never even began to contemplate in the past. And by way of application, one thing I'm trying to get you to see is in spite of the darkness of this day that we are living in, how very thankful we should be to living, be living out our lives in this dark day with all this that we have at our disposal. We have the whole Bible. We have the whole 
complete understanding of the person and work of Christ. We have the whole complete understanding of the church of Jesus Christ and what it's here for and what its mission is. And Yes, there were believers in the Old Testament era. We know that, right? Very devout and godly believers, but they were only working with what they had. There were things that we know now, and sadly we take these things for granted a lot, that they could never even conceive of. We have the whole treasure house of revealed divine reality in this book made up of both the Old and New Testament, and there's so much that I could take you through that that they were just not seeing back during that era. Like, remember, they only saw from the Old Testament Messiah coming as a conquering king, remember? I mean, they weren't looking for the suffering servant. Remember John the Baptist? Even John the Baptist, are you the one or should we look for another? Because what I've been reading in the Old Testament is not happening. And they sure were not expecting the Gentiles (laughs) of all people to be grafted in to one body. There's lots of mysteries that were revealed by the New Testament for sure. (laughs) <laughs> it would. It just had to just make their minds explode that Israel would be set aside for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles would come in from Romans. They couldn't conceive of the indwelling Christ. Think about that. Remember back in Colossians 1, look at these verses in 26, 27. That's been a while back since we were there, but look what it says. That is the mystery, there's the word, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of His glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what is it? Look next. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's another mystery. I mean, they couldn't even conceive of that. In the Old Testament, they, they, they couldn't conceive of the incarnation that, that God Himself would come in human flesh. Remember Colossians 2, 2. That their, their hearts having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's, what? Mystery, that is, Christ Himself, God in human flesh. Man, that's just, wow. I can't imagine being a first century Jew and, and having that unloaded, especially you've been regenerated and then it's being illuminated to you through Scripture. So we live in this age that is just chock full of sacred secrets that are being have been revealed, incredible truth. It's just at our full disposal. It's just riches unparalleled in Scripture. Now, I don't have time today, but we will also be unpacking as we go through these verses that Paul presents the church as a body. That's the metaphor. What is a metaphor? Well, a metaphor is a way of saying something that gives you a better understanding of it. And the metaphor that we're going to get here in Ephesians is of a body. 
the church is like a body. It is an interlinking living organism. It's not an organization that you join like the Lions Club. It's not a building. It's literally a living organism. We are all one in Christ, in the body of Christ. And I won't get into all the details of that today, but we will as we go through this tremendous epistle. First three chapters again give us the theology of the body. The last three give us the behavior of the body. The first three doctrine. The last three practice. Just another masterpiece from the Apostle Paul under the inspiration, of course, of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just round this out today. How about let's look at the first two verses. Incredible. Paul gives us a double source of authority first. In verse number one, look at it. Paul, an apostle of God, I'm sorry, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, it would be enough for Paul to say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That would be enough. But for Ephesians, he's got to add by the will of God. Why? Because Ephesians is a book about fullness. The fullness of God and Christ. And let me remind you of something I alluded to in our study of Colossians. Paul says next in verse 1, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a little... uh, uh, housekeeping that we have to do right here uh, uh, from a uh, textual procedure. Now, the words there, you see the phrase, at Ephesus. That phrase doesn't appear in all the manuscripts that we have that we've collected on this epistle. In some manuscripts, and I talked about this a little bit in Ephesians, there's just a blank right there. And there's a reason for why in some of the uh, Greek manuscripts there's a blank. And before I explain that, you'll notice if you go through this whole epistle, there's no mention of any local person in this letter. Like we saw in Colossians, we saw all those names. Not through the entire letter. There's no mention of any city in this letter except the manuscripts that have Ephesus in them. There's no mention of any individuals at any congregation throughout the entirety of Ephesians. Go read it through. And the reason for the blanks in some of the manuscripts, most commentators think, is because this was a circular letter that was sent to all the churches of Asia Minor, one of which was Ephesus. And that makes a lot of sense. And every other church just stuck its own name in that blank space in those manuscripts. Remember at the end of Colossians, we just we just studied this. Paul talked about a letter to the Laodiceans. He doesn't name it, so he may well have had this letter in mind that went to the church at Laodicea. It could have gone around to Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Saros, and Ephesus. It, could have, it just made its way all around the cycle of all the churches and and maybe it went to Ephesus first. And then it went on from there with the little blank spot. And let me tell you something else that gets behind this view is that this is Paul's message 
to the church about the church's identity as a whole. This is not written in a local sense. Like Colossians was written locally to deal with those local problems that they were having there at Colossae. Now, in verse 1, Paul calls himself an apostle, which he was. He speaks for God. He met all the qualifications of an apostle. Do you know there are only 14 men in history that could ever possibly call themselves apostles? The first 12, then Judas dropped out. They added Matthias, and then later number 14 was Paul. Anybody that calls themselves an apostle today, no matter how big their billboard is, is either delusional and self-deceived or they are a shyster. And I'm heavy on the shyster side when it comes to that deal, in my opinion. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. So what else do you need to know? Christ called me and sent me, and now I'm speaking to you, and that's enough credentials to make everybody sit down and listen. Okay? And if you read the rest of his epistles, you know that that's not vanity. Paul doesn't have vanity or self-glory. He doesn't have the need for for personal merit. You just read that throughout. I I am what I am by the grace of God, right? He says, I was a a blasphemer and a persecutor, and I am now the chief of sinners, he says. I'm not worthy of this, but somehow God called me of all people to be an apostle by his own will. So listen up. That's how I feel standing up here today before you. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's how he lived from his conversion all the way to the cutting off of his head. Now, we not only see a double-barreled authority, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, that's a double-barreled authority, but also a double designation of believers. Look at the end of verse 1. To the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He calls Christians by two terms, saints and faithful. That covers both sides, by the way. From God's side, he made us saints. From our side, we exercise faith. Now, as you know, saints are not some special class of good work specialists that are canonized by the Roman church for their good deeds. That's not a saint, okay? None of them folks are. Simply put, a saint is anybody who is genuinely a Christian, a regenerate believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Saint, hagios, holy, means set apart. Every believer has been set apart unto God in Christ. Every single one of us has been declared righteous, not infused with righteousness, but imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And we're all saints. From God's side, we're saints. From our side, we acted in faith towards Christ. And even that faith is a gift that he gives us. So here we have a double designation of believers. We are the saints and we are the faithful. And then look in verse 2. We get a double Blessing. 
Grace to you and peace. That's a double blessing, right? Grace in the New Testament is the word charis. We always keep that definition in our mind. Unmerited favor. Let me expand that definition. The kindness of God toward undeserving people. Can I say that again? The kindness of God toward undeserving people. That's grace. Did you know that that was the typical greeting in the early church? You know how we come up to one another, hey, how you doing? How's it going? They came up to one another, grace to you. Huh? Man, what a great greeting. If we all just started coming up to, instead of, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Grace to you, right? Grace is the fountain of all blessing. It's out of God's grace that everything comes, right? And, and, and that greeting, grace to you, is just a reminder of that. And then look at the next blessing, verse 2, peace. John MacArthur says, grace is the fountain and peace is the stream. Huh? Think of this. Because we have faith from God, we have peace with God, and we also have the peace of God inside of us, which surpasses all understanding. That's a sermon series right by itself right there for a couple of weeks. And it's because of God's sovereign grace, folks, that we have God's peace. It's the kind of peace that you have when everything's falling apart around you in your circumstances. And you can just stop and pray and then boom, peace, pow, it's right there. Right? And there'd be no peace without grace. So double authority, double designation of believers, double blessing, And lastly, a double source for all the grace and peace. You want to see that? Look lastly in verse 2. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. The double source. So just from these two verses, you should be able to tell that we have some tremendous riches coming our way in our study of Ephesians. So you need to be here every single solitary Sunday. That's what that means. And let me encourage you to start reading the book of Ephesians. It's not very long, six chapters. And when you get to the end, read it again. And when you get to the end, read it again. If you keep reading the book of Ephesians over and over while we're going through it, Verse by verse, by the time we get to the end of this deal, you're going to know Ephesians like nobody's business. If you got a study Bible, read all the study notes. Go with it. And if you got any questions as we go through this, ask them. Ask me. Let's talk about it. Oh, I don't know about that part. I don't know. What about that part? And I say, let's start cashing checks. Out of God's bank that never, ever runs out of our riches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the embarking of another journey into a new book of your Bible. Oh, Lord, I don't... 
I don't take this for granted. It's so overwhelming that I do this. I still can't believe I do it. But you got to have somebody to do it. And so I just want to pray each and every Sunday that you'd give me unction to preach. That you give your people ears to hear. And as I learn from Ephesians and turn around and give each Sunday what I learned in the previous week to your people, that your people would be discipled, that your people would grow towards spiritual maturity and, and just grow spiritually. And I also pray that if through our study, any are here or who come through here in our doors that have not bowed the knee to King Jesus in saving faith, Lord, that you would use the powerful preaching of your word combined with the power of your spirit to bring one to saving faith in Christ. And we would be so careful to give you all every ounce of the glory for something like that to happen in our midst. Because you are the only one ultimately who saves. And we give you our praise. We pray that everything that we've done here from this place today be done in such a way, has been done in such a way as to bring you maximum glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.